I'm Neil Sharp, partner of Pen Partnership and the host of this podcast. The theme of this series is the rise of the customer, which is all about consumerism in its broadest sense. The aim is to explore all aspects of customer experience in different sectors and to hear stories and anecdotes and to take inspiration sometimes from the most unlikely of places. And I think it's fair to say that today's episode is certainly true to that aim because today we're going to draw CX, customer experience, inspiration from the worlds of witches and mermaids. Before you click stop and think that I've completely lost the plot, let me tell you that I'm joined today by Shabil Pounder, who is a successful children's author. And together we're going to explore how some of the basic skills and techniques that we use within customer experience management are actually used within not just the world of publishing and selling children's books, but actually during the creative process, even down to the development of characters and also fictional worlds that exist within books. Shabil is the author of the best-selling Witch Wars and Bad Mermaids series of books and Christmas bestseller Tinsel. Her debut, Witch Wars, was shortlisted for the Sainsbury's Children's Book Award and the Waterstones Children's Book Prize. And the Bad Mermaid series was a World Book Day 2019 title and a Sunday Times bestseller. Previously, she worked as a journalist writing for publications including The Guardian and Vogue Online and was also a philanthropy columnist for the Financial Times in the UK. I learned so much talking to Shabil about the creative process and about publishing, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So let's welcome Shabil. Hi, Shabil. First of all, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, which I think will be quite different from some of the ones that I often have with my business colleagues. So, yeah, really looking forward to chatting. As I said in the introduction, you're a successful children's author of the best-selling Witch Wars and Bad Mermaid series of books. And I know that previously you worked as a journalist writing for publications including The Guardian and Vogue Online, and also you were a philanthropy columnist for The Financial Times. Um, But perhaps before we get stuck into the meat of this, could we perhaps start by you telling us your own story in your own words and how you ended up doing what you're doing today? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Neil. So I, yeah, uh, my first job survived of uni was working at the Financial Times for the how to spend it section. And I did a lot of research and fact checking for them. And I also wrote the philanthropy column at the Financial Times. And I was there for around six years doing various bits and pieces, but I would always write fiction on the side. And it always seemed to be children's <laughs> children's stories, which I'm not, I'm not really sure why I gravitated to that. I think it's just the sort of limitless potential of of you know children get so into the stories and, mm. and it's so much fun. So I would always write those things. And then I decided to try and pursue it seriously, which involves getting an agent. Most publishing houses will only look at uh, manuscripts submitted by agents. So I managed to get an agent and then we managed to get a publishing deal. And I had about a, a year and a half of crossover uh, with working full time at BFT and the first and second book being published. And then I soon realized that actually a lot of children's publishing, you need to do a lot of events and really go out and meet kids at festivals and school events. And it just wasn't going to be possible while I was working full time there. So luckily the books took off enough that I could leave that job. And um, and then I did a bit of freelance journalism in between. But 
yeah, that's how I came to be a full-time author. Brilliant. Okay, thanks for that. And um, I mean, so some of our audience, I'm sure, will be familiar with your books, particularly those that have got younger kids. But just for those that are not, perhaps you, could you give us a bit of an overview of the books that you've actually written and the story of them sort of breaking through and, and also the target audience you're writing for, just to give us a bit of a sense while we're chatting of, of what we're actually talking about here? Yeah, so the first series was called Witch Wars, and then each of the subsequent books is, is Witch Wars, Witch Snitch, Witch Watch, Witch Tricks. So we ended up, it either had to be something that rhymed with witch which got really hard or um (laughs) (laughs) only the rude words left and um and yeah or something that was a w word so yeah I didn't make that mistake again with the second series which is called (laughs) bad mermaids and then just has a subtitle and then I've also written a book called tinsel which came out in hardback last year which is a sort of retelling of the santa story from the perspective of what if we got the Santa story wrong and actually the character of Mrs. Claus was was sort of more important in that story. Mm-hmm. A sort of feminist retelling of the Santa story. But the Witch Wars series was my first one. And there are four around sort of, I'd say, 7 to 11, approximately. I'd say the average readership falls at about nine years old. And in publishing, it's kind of split between, you have picture books, which are the, you know, the big format lots of illustrations for really young kids and then you have what's called middle grade which is what I write which I think is an American term because they talk about middle school Mm. and that's about 7 to 11 and then after that you go into the kind of tween and YA so I I write for that for that age range and yeah with with which was with the first one it was it was kind it was kind of an interesting journey to to it kind of breaking out and being a book that that sold well because it was you know sometimes books get acquired by publishing houses in like massive deals and it's you know in the papers and it's the next Harry Potter and things like that but it was quite a quiet acquisition and everyone thought oh this is a nice book it'll do it'll do quite well and then we just did so many school events and promotions and things and I think there was a lot of just word of mouth recommending from the kids. And I think it was one of the bookshops in London. I think it was Pickle Pepper Books in Crouch End who are wonderful. Um, I remember doing an event with them years ago and they said it was so funny because Witch Wars came out in March, which isn't a witchy time of year at all. You'd expect it to be Halloween. They said all summer, all these parents were coming in and saying, do you have this witch book that they're all talking about? Right, okay. <laughs> got something in this story the witches live below the sink pipes and that's why witches hats are pointy because when they come up into our world <laughs> they have sucked up through the sink pipes so there's all these parents coming in really confused saying it's about witches and sink pipes I think and they were like yeah we know that one so um so it kind of built from there which was quite nice because it was you know the kids themselves recommending it to each other and mm. so mm. that was that was nice that's what you want really I think okay like it. yeah and you you've sort of drawn a bit of a distinction there between I suppose what was in my mind was target audience so you're writing for the the 7 to 11 year old and then there's obviously the parent involved and you kind of very clearly articulated how the word of mouth thing kind of spreads between the two but uh, is there a kind of an inflection point where 
you suddenly are writing for the child and you're marketing to the child as opposed to the parent because obviously as they get older I guess they they're, they're free to make their own choices about what books they read is, is that is that a fair yeah, distinction definitely especially well in the picture book market you're really thinking I mean you want the child to enjoy it obviously but the the and the story needs to be be child friendly but there's a lot of appealing to the parent I think in that market because a small child might go into a bookshop and pick up a book but ultimately at that age you've got the parents buying the books whereas once you get to about seven and they're independent readers they'll have their own opinions about what they really like or what their friends are reading and then you're you're sort of a lot more focused, I think, on the child or the child has more of a lead in Mm. what they're reading. And of course, teenagers even more so probably. So as it goes up the, up the age range, you're the the focus, I suppose, of who you're appealing to slightly shifts. There's a lot in picture books of, um, you know, about, about parents and how much they love the, you know, it'll be a bear and how much the, the mummy bear loves the baby bear and stuff. Right. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, a parent would want to read okay. to their child. So it's that, it, yeah, it, it changes, I think, as, as you go up the, the age range. Okay, interesting. And I mean, I, perhaps you Phil, you can share this, but um, I'd, I'd love to explore the creative process a little bit. I mean, I, I've never written anything like a, um, a, a creative novel. I, I write fairly poor blogs, I guess, at best. But um, I mean, would you mind sort of sharing with us, just so we can get a, a context before we sort of think about how you bring an understanding of your your readership into this, but could you talk us through the creative process a bit about how you go about writing some of these things? I mean, is it just ideas that fall out of the sky and you catch them and, and kind of string them together, or do you sit down very determinedly and, and think about creating the characters and then the worlds that they live in I'd, I'd love to understand a bit more about that if I may yeah so uh, I think it often starts with an idea um in terms of what I like to write because they're sort of well hopefully I was going to say they are funny books but I think that's for other people to decide but um they're sort of comedy fantasy so what I like to do is take really established imagery like whether it's a witch or a mermaid or something like you know, the Santa story that everyone knows, and then twist it slightly for a comedic effect. So looking at things like why do witches, why do we perceive them as having pointy hats and and finding funny ways to kind of explain these things away. Um, so you have a starting point with, with something that everyone recognises and then you can mess with it and that's where the comedy comes in between. Yeah. And then I build up, I think with, with fantasy, you have to really build up the worlds. And that is something that takes quite a lot of time because mm. it has to feel really believable, but also, I suppose, in a way, aspirational for the for the kids. You know, you want to create a world that they want to go to. And so there's a lot of, of building that up, whether it's, you know, putting in shops or the, the thinking about, I always say to kids when I do, creative writing with them I say if you keep a notebook and write down everything you do in the day and then have one column with all the things that you do and then say you're writing a book about witches or zombies or mermaids whatever it is in the other column write what they would do so when you brush your teeth in the morning how does a witch brush their teeth okay okay a black toothbrush or does a toad fall on their head and they brush their teeth for them you know and then slowly over the day you kind of build up all these 
world-building elements that sort of you can incorporate into the story and it makes it a richer world. Wow, interesting. And I mean, what? so how long does that take? I mean, creating a world sounds like a a, a, a long process, I guess, and I, I, I love that technique. But I mean, what, what, in a typical thing, right, something like mermaids, for example, which would be in your second series, how long did it take to create the world of, of the mermaids? It probably, I mean, you do a lot of thinking about it and just jotting down notes. I suppose it's in the, the bit that takes the time is how you then incorporate all of that into a plot. And often my first drafts of books, the plot gets completely changed. You know, my editor will say, I love the world building and all the characters, but let's have them do something completely different. And then, of course, all the scenes can be completely different. So I I don't know. It takes a, about a year to make a book from beginning to end. Um, there are about 30,000 words, which is fairly short, and they're illustrated, so there has to be time for the illustrations to be done. Right. Um, but about a year, about 12 months all in, and I'd say maybe four months of that at the very beginning is really getting everything in place in the story okay okay and do you I mean I I suppose it's different on different days but I mean do you sort of kind of have your cup of coffee in the morning and then sit down and write I mean do you force yourself to do that or is that is that a stupid thing or or, yeah how how do you go about doing because I'm just thinking myself you know even writing some simple stuff sometimes I'll sit there with my mouth open staring into space and finding every distraction under the sun other than doing what I'm supposed to be doing so goodness how you do it for a 30,000 word is how do you do it well, will you write fact, which actually having worked at the FT and stuff does take a really long time because it has to be exact. Whereas I can write about toads brushing a witch's teeth for, you know, you can get a thousand words out of that really Fair easily. Enough, yeah. So it's, it's um, when you're making things up, it is, it is a lot, um, a lot more different, but I, yeah, I try to have a bit of a routine. I mean, when I'm I'm sort of editing at the moment and I'm on the deadline and so I will work sometimes into the night, you know, mm. get up in the morning and sit down and, and edit and then it will keep going for as long as it needs to keep going. Yeah. Um, but then there's other days where, because there's lots of admin and t- things to do or events and uh, so so you can have weak stretches where, if you just had a book out, you're just doing promotion and things. Mm-hmm. So it re- it's really very varied. But I do, when I'm writing, try to have a bit of a at least four hours a day, even if I'm stuck on something, to just get, just make sure that I get the work count done. But I try to write a first draft in a month because if it's 30,000 words, as long as I'm hitting 1,000 words a day, then I can normally get a, right. first, a terrible first draft, but something yeah. to work with within a month. And then start shaping it, yeah. Okay, interesting. And just uh, the, the other question I had around that was, um, I know that you've written a book called Beyond Platform 13, which I think is, is that a sequel of somebody else's book? So you had to take somebody else's book and then try and imagine what the sequel would be. Is, is that correct? Yeah, so that's what they call an estate project. So basically, is um, the first one, The Secret of Platform 13, was written by Eva Ibbotson. So that book came out when I was a child. And Eva, sadly, passed away in 2010. She was in her 80s, I think. And so when an author passes away, their estate is handed over to whoever it's left to. And in her case, it was her children who are now adults. 
And so her children and the publisher approached me and, and asked if I would like to write a sequel. They were going to do a sequel to The Secret of Platform 13 and if I would like to write it. So that was a totally different experience mm. because I'm using someone else's characters and going into a world that's already built up and um and so it was it was a really it was a really fun experience it felt more like having one foot in the sort of fact camp I suppose or going back to my research roots at the FT because I really wanted to get the book right and I didn't want to take it somewhere that Eva wouldn't have taken it herself and so I started looking at so maybe where her the characters had come from and I found lots of parallels in so one of the the characters in the book is he's a prince in the book and I thought oh maybe he could be corrupted in the second book and become bad or something maybe he's grown up to be bad <laughs> where did you get the inspiration for that from <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I thought um I thought it'd be interesting. He'd be because he's so powerful. He'd be a really interesting character to twist. And um, but then I was looking at who could have inspired him, and he really likes nature and things in the first book. And her husband, the way she described her husband, was very much how she described this character. And then I was thinking, there's so many parallels, like how kind he is and how much he loves nature. And he also keeps this special mist maker creature under his bed. And then I looked at an old article that Eva had done an interview with the, one of the papers years ago. And she talked about when she first met her husband, he kept an ant farm under his bed. And I just thought there's so many parallels between the two that I know now that she wouldn't ever corrupt him because right. he's based on someone who's very special to her so so I kind of used a lot of research I think to guide where I took the characters and, and her her children were really helpful with that as well so but everything had to be approved in advance mm. before I wrote it whereas I have a lot more creative freedom when I write my own things but but it was just such a special project to do because I loved that book when I was little so yeah. I couldn't believe they were letting me go into that world and play around with the yeah, that, fantastic yeah no really lovely well, thanks for talking about that it's really really good okay so i mean in every industry sector if i could sort of bring it up to, to customers and business for a moment in every industry sector that we work in organizations that really get it right are those that truly understand their customers they understand their needs their wants their emotions and and really design their propositions if i can put it that way to meet the needs of of their customers and i was curious about how do you go about getting to know your customers? So again, we talked a little bit about the parent, but obviously the child being the kind of primary end customer. How do you go about doing that? I mean, is that done on research or is it about face-to-face contact? I mean, presumably you've got a fairly broad readership in terms of even within that cohort of seven to 11-year-olds and they come from all walks of life. But how do you get to know them and what they want and kind of how does that get fed into your characterization and your well-building, et cetera? Well, I think a lot of it comes from things I liked as a child. I think a lot of children's authors tend to have really, really vivid memories of their childhood. And um, and so a lot of it does come from, I suppose, my own childhood. But also, I think, especially when you're, you're in the industry, I know lots of friends that have kids for the age that they write for, and they'll, you know, pick their brains on stuff for Mm. for what to put in but um for me I think I do we do a lot of events at schools or literary festivals 
and you just get to meet the kids there and you get get there's loads of interesting things that you pick up in terms of just reading to them from the book or seeing what bits they really get attached to, especially if you're writing a series, it can really help how you develop a series, what characters that they really like and why. But I think a lot of the time, it's often just as long as there's a relatable element in the story. So, you know, to use Harry Potter as an example, it's ultimately this massive battle of good versus evil and Voldemort and life and death. But at the heart of it, it's just about a bunch of kids at school and all the the drama of that and the politics of being at school. And so kids really relate to that. So I think you always just have to have something in it that they that they relate to. But it is really interesting at at school events and things because you you just you really get to know Mm. what they respond to, which is really good. And also what they think of the book as a package. One thing that we found really interesting with Bad Mermaids is a lot of boys read it. And we did a World Book Day book, which is like a one pound, you know, the kids have this World Book Day and they produce one pound books that you can either buy or you get it free with the token at school. And it's it's to is really to sort of reach kids who don't have access to books easily or maybe don't own their own book. Um, but kids all across the country participate in it. But we did a kind of mashup of the two, Bad Mermaids and Meet the Witches, it was called. And um, all the booksellers were saying, we're so surprised how many boys pick up Bad Mermaids because you think that mermaids are kind of gendered to be really female you know that the, the mm. boys wouldn't like it but there was lots of boys so we were all really intrigued as to why the boys okay. like it what is it and I think it's because it's sort of a more modern take on mermaids and there's all these cool cities and like mermaids with shark tails and things like that and a place called Hammerhead Heights which is full of sharks which they all seem to really like but also just one thing that one theory was the illustrator is a man so it's like having a man's name on the cover maybe makes it I don't know there was all these theories about because everyone assumes or maybe just boys are a little bit more like in my day it would be like oh that's for girls yeah yeah maybe a bit more think like that anymore yeah yeah so, so it's really interesting with things like that. You have sales that do well with a certain part of the audience that you're not expecting it to do as well right. and trying to figure out why that is that they, you know, and, and if you ask them, they often just say, I just thought it looked really good. So <laughs> it's um, it's interesting. Mm. And, and how do you deal with the sort of aging thing? I, mean, I made that point earlier, but, you know, as, as you're writing I guess a series can run for a number of years and as your readers move through there presumably becomes a point where either surprisingly they're still reading it or perhaps they start to fall out of that readership group I mean how do, how do you deal with that? Yeah there's always a sort of turnover in audience because they will always ultimately outgrow the books at some point and I do have sort of kids that stick with the books probably beyond the age category because I guess it's just the recommended age category but really you can read anything you want if you enjoy it um yeah it is it is something that you know there's there's that constant sort of turnover and I did a festival event once and uh there were these teenagers sitting in the front row and uh I thought they look quite they look quite old to be in this event I thought maybe they're just here to sort of laugh at how ridiculous Um, yeah, I felt really intimidated. It was like they were these super cool people in the front row. And at the end, they came up and they said, uh, oh, we just 
just wanted to come because your books were the books of our childhood, which I find so terrifying because it, I think I was only four years into publishing the books at this point. And I thought, well, how could you have had a childhood? But of course, if you start reading at eight, nine, and then mm. you're suddenly a teenager, you know, you do, that's such a change in age for a child. So yeah, it was, it was really strange. It made me realize it feels like four years for me goes by so quickly, but for them, mm. they're you know, grown up all of a sudden. So yeah, it does, it does, um, it, it does go by quite quickly. You know, you have to, that's why we tend to publish series. Most people who do the younger category of middle grade will often publish two a year because it's just sort of keeping that momentum up um, and making sure you kind of catch them at the right age. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's this constant turnover of your customer group, if I can sort of refer to it in that way. So interesting. I mean, when you're introducing new characters to the series I, I presume and i apologize i haven't read the mermaids series for example because i don't i don't my my kids are way out way outside of your group but perhaps i should have done is, is research but i mean do you do you test new characters with people or do you just kind of know that they're going to land because they're they're just working you know other stuff's worked before and therefore you kind of know what's going to work with people i mean how, how do you introduce new stuff because i guess at times Particularly if you're twisting stuff, you must be, you must wonder whether it's going to land okay with your readership, or is that the role of the editor? Yeah, I think editors have a big part to play in that, and also in a publishing house. So you work closely with the editor, but also the book gets shared around the sales team and the marketing team and publicity, and everyone will have is allowed to, well, I think it depends on the publishing house, but certainly up and through our work, everyone has a bit of input and, and often it's really valuable. So we had with the Tinsel book for the title, for example, we had the subtitle was uh, The Untold Story of Mrs. Claus. And someone in sales said, I think the problem with that is it makes it sound like the main character is an old woman because everyone thinks of Mrs. Claus as an old woman and we want to identify more with the child immediately with the title so that was changed um so they, they'll sometimes propose things like that and then it makes me realize oh actually that's a really really valid point mm. um, but we don't test anything on children I know that tv shows and things often will develop a pilot and then show it to a test audience and see how how it goes but we don't at all, we don't at all. Although I do run covers past kids, okay. just kids I know. I'll send them the cover and say, "What do you think of this?" And it's always very interesting. But then sometimes they'll have hilarious opinions of just you know there'll be a child that's just like, "I hate yellow. I hate yellow," and you can't really you can't really base design decisions on things like that. But other times they'll say you know, this is what I think the story is about based on the cover or they'll pick up on something. Okay. So we put, a, we put a cat on the front of Witch Wars, for example, and there's no cat actually in the book because it's kind of witch is done in a different way. She has a pet slug. And I said, do you think the black cat on the cover, do you think kids will assume that that's a character? And they were like, well, I think we just need to kind of, for the first one, establish it as witches basically because they have flat hats and stuff and so it doesn't immediately scream witch when you look at it and then the first school event I did when I said at the end does anyone have any questions the kid raised their hand and said 
who is the cat on the on the cover like what's the cat's name so I think it's just being aware of how they look at something and so mm. so ever since then I've always shown the covers to to kids just to see what they what yeah. they think of it and how they interpret it yeah I mean there's so many parallels there with every other sector we work in because you know having a knowledge and understanding of what people need you won't, you won't test everything. You'll, you, you know, you'll put stuff out there because that's part of the content, if you like, of what the, the thing that you're marketing to them. But the idea of the cover, and I mean, you know, let's use that as a, a pivot into that for a moment. But you know, you've got to make it look appealing. You've got to make it look like it's relevant to the product that you're offering. And um, you know, packaging is a is a huge part of marketing in every industry. So um, uh, very, very interesting. But can we talk about that a bit? I mean, I mean, presumably the artwork on the outside. As you've said, you know, it, it plays a very important role in terms of not only the marketing, but sort of bringing to life before someone even opens the cover and starts reading it about what the book's about. I mean, how, how do you how do you commission and choose the artwork? Is it something that you get involved in, or is that very much the publishing house's knowledge that, about what's going to work, and, and therefore they know best? Or how do you do it? Well, it's a bit of a mix. It's definitely a really, really important part um, to get right, I think. And the publisher will have ideas about what kind of illustrator they want to use based on where they want to position it in the market in terms of, you know, whether like, sort of what what kind of feel it has, what retailers they want to get it into. But then I do have a fairly big say in who we choose. So they, they'll normally... So for Bad Mermaids, for example, they gave a brief to maybe 10 or 20 illustrators that they felt were were right for the project um, because there's so much illustration talent out there. And they said, just draw three mermaids. And they didn't give them much more of a brief than that. And what was really interesting was Jason, who we chose in the end. So he did the a couple of the original Harry Potter covers. So he's been around for a long time, but he's got this very versatile style. And he can do all kinds of different different styles. And he drew the mermaids really exactly like I saw them in my head. So really? I thought that was such a good sign. Yeah, and they weren't really, um, they weren't your sort of stereotypical mermaids. And I think he just got it straight away that right. he wanted to, you know. And, and so the fact that we were in sync about that was really good. And then uh, Laura Ellen Anderson, who does the Witch Wars books, I just loved her illustrations from the beginning. And again, she kind of just got it. And then Sarah Warburton, who I work on with Tinsel, I mean, she submitted a cover design that we just was basically used as the final. You know, she normally you go back and forth a lot, but she, again, she got, it. Completely yeah. got it straight away. So, and I think they all, you have to pick something that's right for the, the book as well, mm. because it needs to, it needs to reflect the content and, you know, match it. And so what all three of them do very well is they do comedy very well, I think. And that's quite a hard thing to get right in illustration. Mm. I was reading an article ages ago with Quentin Blake, who did Rob Dahl's illustrations. And he was saying, as the illustrator, when you're illustrating comedy, and he's a, he's a master at it, but he was saying, you need to know whether to illustrate the punchline or what which bit to illustrate. And it's often not the punchline, like the instinct is to illustrate the punchline. But of course, the way the reader scans the page, you see the illustration first on the inside. You know, if it's got illustrations throughout the book, which my books do, the child will see the illustration first. So therefore, you've kind of ruined the punchline. So he said, if it's 
someone having a pie thrown at their face. You don't throw, you don't illustrate the pie hitting the face. You illustrate it flying through the air towards right. someone's face. Yeah. And then you let the words be the punchline. So I thought that was really interesting, but they're all, they all share that, that sort of same talent for illustrating humor, mm. which is really important, I guess. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, but you, you've, transported me back to reading with my uh, both my boys they used to love uh, various books that were illustrated by Quentin Blake as you say master of it and um, spending many hours just looking at the pictures let alone reading the words so uh, yeah, very good but no I, I understand that and that, that makes a, a ton of sense and I mean sort of turning to the commercial side of the industry yeah, sort of thinking about how books are sold and purchased by um, your both your readers i.e. the children but also the, the parents I mean to what extent does the marketing promotion of your books sort of vary by different types of retailer? Because I guess nowadays you're talking about not only different formats in terms of you talked about the picture books, you've got the smaller ones perhaps that have less illustration in, and then ebooks. I mean, how you know, and, and then I guess there's different settings. I mean, obviously you've got the very big online retailers, but then supermarkets and things. I mean, I'm, I'm presuming that all of those require a very different set of techniques to try and get the books into the hands of the right people. Yeah, well, I think each retailer has different criteria for their customer. And so the aim is, of course, from the publisher's point of view and author, also from the author's point of view, to, to get it into as many retailers as possible so that you maximize the potential readership. And often they use different techniques, I suppose, with um, it's often to do with the design. So you know, sprayed edges have become a thing in recent years, the sort of colourful edges on the books. And certain retailers will will prefer that. You know, hardback editions will always sell better in, you know, slightly more often independent bookshops or things, people looking for lovely gift books. Whereas if right. you're selling in a supermarket, you it might be sprayed edges or a cool foil on the cover. I mean, it's, it's not meetings that I sit in, obviously, but I do, I do love to hear what their feedback is because the sales team will go out to all the buyers at retailers and they'll, and it's, it's part of a sort of, they're included as the book is, is developed, not necessarily the content, the bit that, that I do, but the, but all the design around it, which is another reason why you want an illustrator who can work across the, the mm. different markets and yeah and often the retailers will be involved fairly early I would say they'll show them mock-ups of, of the cover I've known of titles to change based on really feedback yeah they wow. just um you know so again it's that thing of if they really know their customer and then they might point something out kind of like the sales team pointing out the Mrs. Claus thing to me and then suddenly you think oh why didn't we think of that uh, you know okay. so there's yeah. a, it's a yeah. it's a very collaborative process by that stage or they might say we prefer this foil to another foil we had one retailer because the hardback edition of tinsel had a specific foil on it and we changed it for the paperback or there was a mock-up of it that we had changed and they said oh we really loved the other foil so the publisher was like no problem we will change it back and you can also produce exclusive content so tinsel that's coming out at christmas time I've written a special extra chapter, which is about one of the characters. So one retailer will get that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, So there's lots of different ways in which they work with the retailers to kind of give them something special or, or give them something that's more geared towards their customer, I suppose. 
so yeah it is um as the author you you're kind of quite out of all of those conversations that they do feedback to you about you know what's been said or what people right. like and things okay but you're kind of insulated from influence i mean it doesn't sound like it it influences heavily the not so much the story but the characters or anything like that it's it's you write and then there's this packaging yeah, that, discussion that bit is, is very much sort of done in advance and then and it's, yeah. all, it's a lot more to do to do with the package definitely but yeah and then also I suppose in terms of the design I do have a little bit of say in things like um when we had a, a Bad Mermaids cover there were we, there's four books in that series and I think book four book three is blue in color and book four was going to be a different color blue and I said just from being at school events oh they always talk about I've got the I've got the you know the pink one and the purple one and the yellow one um, and yeah. I think if we do two blues in a row then they might get confused and I think that's something as well you know retailers will often have comments like that you know and about well the mm. last one was this color or so that's or how it's going to sit on the shelf as well. Often they, they mock up. Um, I know in supermarkets they do that. The buyers do this cool thing where they mock up what their shelf is going to look like okay. in any given season. And sometimes you might have that all the Christmas books are red, so someone needs to change a couple of them. Or so it's quite interesting how all mm. the design is developed. Yeah, no, very much so. And what about? ebooks and audiobooks i mean does they play a big part in children's publishing or not well ebooks i would say no um, but that's anecdotally based on my own sales i don't know mm. if there might be children's authors out there who most of their sales are ebooks i have no idea yeah I, what i would say is it's i would say it's about five percent of my sales or maybe less right. it's it's like very small and i think that's just because kids again it's it's seen as more of a product I think kids see books as more of a toy mm. closer to a toy whereas an adult an ebook is is really convenient you know so you don't mm. have to lug a book around or take it on the tube or whatever it is whereas kids don't really have that problem and they also like to collect things so I think it's this idea of you know if it's a if it's a series of books then you you want to have them all physically kind of in your bedroom or something if it's books that you love I think maybe if ebooks get to a stage where they become more interactive or something, or like mm. the illustrations are animated or something like that, then maybe it would would encourage kids more. But I think at the moment it's still very much mm. physical copies of books. But saying that audiobooks are very popular, because I suppose that's just having the story read to you, which is yeah. what happens in school or at home. So it's a format that they're familiar with. And I think they, they do really like that. So audio sales are often fairly good for children's books. Mm. Do you read your own? Do you do that or not? No, no. <laughs> I'd be awful. No, they we get some very talented actresses in to, to do that. So they're... Um, they're always really good. But yeah, I think a lot of publishing houses have started doing audiobooks in-house as well now, whereas it used to be that you'd sell the audio rights. But okay. that's changed uh, now. Well, certainly at Bloomsbury, a lot of it's produced in-house and things. So it's quite nice that to choose who 
who does it so you get lots of voice samples so yeah fun. okay okay so that's really important that you you've got to be i guess you know similar as the, the cover you've got a thing in your mind but i guess um the wrong voice is going to sound completely wrong to you isn't it and um have the wrong connotations in terms of the tone of the book generally <laughs> so yeah that's very true yeah and um just just thinking about social media i mean what role does social media play both in the promotion of your books but also in terms of interacting with your your readers i guess it's a, a fantastic channel that you've got available to you as an author now that certainly hasn't been available in the past but what what role does it play yeah it's it's really useful for promoting books i'm i'm just on twitter and instagram but then the publisher has i think a facebook page and things so they also do promoting on their channels mm. And I think on Twitter, especially, there's a big network of lots of children's authors on there all sharing other people's work. It's a great place for, you know, you can post a cover reveal and show people what the cover is going to look like in advance for coming out. Mm. And it's great for networking with teachers and librarians and booksellers and also just kids as well will send you often teachers will get kids in their class together to send you questions and so it's a really easy way of of um responding to them i mean we still get traditional mail and things but um but it is really nice if they just have a little question or mm. uh, just want to be in touch with you so it's it's nice and yeah and you get kids often they'll they'll write the letter and then they'll post it on twitter or instagram okay okay so it's really so it's really nice or again if they dress up as the characters or anything that's that's really lovely to see so uh, particularly well booked i guess because people yeah it's a big part yeah, of that isn't it? Yeah. yeah and i get some halloween ones with the witches <laughs> and then yeah or they make make the characters you know the little it's it's very cute so do you, do you get quite a lot? I mean, do you get some kids who kind of communicate quite a bit with you because because you're responding and that sort of stuff? So you sort of maybe get some that, you know, kind of not want to get to know you. I don't mean quite like that, but, you know, sort of actually you you end up in quite a long conversation with them. Yeah, oh, definitely. Over years, I have um, one reader who she, well, she sent me a Christmas card when she was about, I think, eight or nine from the Cheltenham Waterstones uh, book club. And I, I sent her one back and said, if I'm ever in Cheltenham, I'll come to your book club. And Barbara, the bookseller there, um, I was doing events that, that she'd organized school events. And so we went to the book club and uh, this wow. reader has kind of, you know, she'll always send me, she's a really wonderful writer. Actually, when I went to her school, her teacher said, I know you probably get this all the time, but will you just look at her school books? Her writing's really, really good. And so I've kept in touch with her over, must be like four, four or five years now. She's, yeah, and she'll send me, send me books that she's working on and uh, things like that. So it's really lovely. Mm. I mean, I don't know whether it's a, it's a general expectation of younger children now that you can access people on social media and therefore you can have this direct interaction but the the thought of i mean i, I know that a lot of the books that i read when i was younger would have been you know long dead authors like Enid blyton or what have you but um uh you know it, it the, the thought of being a child and being able to actually have access to the person that's created this world feels quite like hair on the back of your neck moment i would have thought for some people because it's it, you made the comment earlier which again must be wonderful for you that if you're the you're the book that they grew up with or you're the characters they grew up with. I mean, that must be a very gratifying to you, but the thought of being able to have contact with that person that's created that world must be fantastic for them. 
yeah, I think it's definitely made the interactions more, yeah, just more kind of normalized, I guess. And, and it's quite, it's really nice. And a lot of um, booksellers as well, you know, physical bookshops, whether it's independence or one of the big chains, they often organize all the school events that we do. So they work with the publisher to organize them. And I'll often have bookshops will say things like, oh, you know, we have this super fan of yours and we'd love to get you into their school so if you're doing events or a tour a promotional tour and thing if you want to come to that one and lots of authors get that you know of of that a bookshop will know of a reader who just really loves this author Mm. and they really try really hard to kind of get them into their schools and stuff and and you know most of the time if it's possible you know we're like of course we'll come and you know it's great you know and especially in the UK where it's really small. And then of course you have all the international editions of things and translations. So, so you have readership in, in different countries as well. So there's some opportunities to go to festivals in in different countries as well, which is, which wow. is really fun. Wow. Fantastic. How exciting. I mean, I mean, what does the future hold for you? Do you think you'll stick with children's books? Is that what you do? Or do you think you might explore other genres and maybe even under the pseudonym of a male name or something, <laughs> following the footsteps of uh, other great children's authors? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to some crime writing. I think I, I, I just really love writing for children. I think because they are the audience as much as as much as it is about the content you know I just I just right. find them so hilarious and they're so it's so nice to work with them that I, I can't imagine writing for adults I think it would be it would be completely different so I would almost say no I, I think I would prefer to go into different kinds of writing that are around the children's books in terms of developing like screenwriting or you know things that you know writing for tv for kids or something like that before I would try and step into the sort of adult Mm. publishing world Mm. no I get that and and just on that point I mean I know that I must just ask you about this I know you've got an option with Sony Pictures to um actually have Bad Mermaids made as a film at some point I mean uh tell us a bit about that I mean what 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 does that mean I'm presuming that if that happened at any point and I know it's just an option at this stage I guess the world might change a bit for you yeah in terms of (laughs) it would be very cool to see it yeah on the big screen yeah so they so they option it which means they can exclusively develop it for a set amount of years and we're not allowed to sell it to anyone else and they've yeah, they're an incredible team at Sony Animation, and I think they do they do such interesting things as well because they they don't stick to one style. So they but they have like, I love the Hotel Transylvania franchise, and then they've also they did Spider Man into the Spider Verse uh, recently, which was kind of this groundbreaking way of developing animation, and the Mitchells versus Machines, which was out recently, which was I thought was brilliant, um, and they're so they they've got such interesting style. Um, and the people they've got working on it, I'm not allowed to talk about anyone that they have currently working on it, but it's incredible, incredible people. So if it does get greenlit, essentially we just they develop it now and, and see how it goes and then decide if they if it's something that they want to continue to pursue. And if it did get greenlit, it would be very very exciting and then what would happen would you would you be involved in the screenplay for that or how, how would you or, or is it then then they take it and they develop it or it's yeah well they're they've got a screenwriter doing developing the script now and I would I'd love to do something like that at some stage in my career I think and I have been developing my own 
screenplay for the Witch Wars series for as a TV okay. series, just yeah. just for fun to see. But yeah, I think their budgets are so massive at Sony Animation that I'm not sure they would trust me with my first. I I, I think they'd be right not to, not to trust me right. at this stage. But they do they do consult me about it, and yeah, I but I've, I'm I'm also quite relaxed. I think that it's a good idea when things are being developed for film that unless the author is really distant from the project and that you've had maybe like a decade of not writing those characters, Mm. I think sometimes if the author can be too close to the story in the books and often the best adaptations are when someone takes it from the film world and goes nuts with it and isn't tied down by all the, the way that it's plotted in the book. And um, so I'm, I'm just kind of, Letting them do their thing because they're okay. all brilliant. Okay. Yeah, no, that sounds well amazing. Oh God, I hope it happens. It'd be so exciting for you. So <laughs> amazing. Thank you. I mean, that's been amazing. Really, really interesting delving into your world, into all of those areas. And um, I know it's a bit of a twist on customer experience management, but I think at the same time, there's so many parallels there in terms of the way in which we go about doing things with clients. You know, and the way we think about our target audiences and and what they're looking for and and how that understanding of your readers through the direct interaction that you have gets infused into the books, the stories, the characters, the marketing, the promotion, everything. So it's it's really interesting. Thank you. Before you go, there's a couple of roundup questions I ask everyone. So stepping out of author world for a moment, but what do you think being truly customer-centric means? I would say it's being like an independent bookshop because I think people always think of independent bookshops as just little you know shops that sell books and it's all very quaint and old-fashioned but I Mm. think they have such a huge role like I was saying about how they'll really try and get an author in for a school visit or because one of their customers a single customer you know loves this author and they just know their customers so well and have personal relationships with them and I think they also do a lot for their customers beyond just selling Mm. them the product Mm. in terms of yeah getting uh, authors into schools but also working with schools and librarians and and you know I think they do a lot for the sort of outreach and literacy in this in this country like one of the things that we that they tend to do which I think is really nice is often if we're doing a promotional tour we go to schools you know, you ultimately want to sell books on that promotional tour, but often they'll put in a couple of schools where they'll say, we probably won't sell many books at all, but the kids have never met an author and it would be really nice if we just go and it's just an hour and it's really nice. And I think they really understand the customer, but the community where that customer lives as well. And I think that that's really important. Yeah, no, no, fantastic answer. I mean, you know, it's the comparison between a, a local corner shop and a supermarket, isn't it, as well, in terms of you might be able to get it cheaper down the road, but you won't get the same service and you won't, certainly won't get the same understanding. And yeah, brilliant. And can you recall an experience you've had, not necessarily in an independent bookshop, but that you would think defines really fantastic customer experience in your mind? Well, yeah, I, I don't, I just, I suppose, yeah, all those examples I gave of independent bookshops, but being completely not talking about books mm. I really love there's a place called Kinloch Lodge in on Sky, and it's such a lovely 
place so it's um they have like wonderful food and when you arrive they sort of have a drink ready for you and uh and all the staff are really friendly and they I don't know it's just it's just a very you go there and you feel completely at ease and Mm. it just feels like a sort of second home to you and I think that's what I really what I really love and I think all my experiences of kind of being a customer it's often where places I stay I think that I feel the most that was really brilliant we had um in Japan we we stayed at this place called Hotel Mume which was incredible it's a tiny little boutique hotel but they were so attentive and even little things like they'd give you a tray of different kinds of nuts when you came back from like a day out and give you a drink and then over the days the nuts would sort of change to what your preferences were because they would keep an eye on what ones you were eating and they used to also print out lots of maps for us you know and tell, tell us where to go and talk us through it and my husband his management consultant said they could save so much money if they just didn't print out so many so many maps but it all color printed and things but yeah so it was yeah I think that that kind of experience is is always really nice mm, yeah yeah absolutely it makes you at ease I think yeah 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 sure and and what about a really bad one can you think of an example of um, what typifies not how not to do it with customer experience yeah well once when I was home in Scotland um we went to a supermarket market and they have you know a fish counter and the person dressed up as you know a fishmonger and we asked for some sea bass and they gave us the full fish and uh, we said oh could, could you fillet it for us and they said I don't know how to fillet a fish and I thought it was just really funny that <laughs> this sort of is sort of made to look really authentic just wearing a costume yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I thought that was quite bad oh my god yeah that is awful it was a disaster so that wasn't a very good experience <laughs> no, no brilliant <laughs> very amusing very amusing great look thank you so much I know that you're editing at the moment I know you're up against the deadline uh, of other kinds as well so um, uh, thank you so much indeed for uh, f- for agreeing to come on it's been a really really lovely chat and um, I've uh, I've learned a lot I have to say about your world so so thank you for that and Aww, um, thank you so much for having me yeah good well good luck with everything and um, speak to you soon thanks Neil bye cheers thanks very much for listening today if you found that useful please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on and if you'd like to know more You can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.